Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. What we have for you now is a panel, if that's what you want to call it, and we'll be doing some, we will be doing questions, won't we? So we'll be talking for a while and then taking some questions about the end of the war in Berlin, right? Um, so buckle up, brace for impact. Here it comes. We have Alex Ritchie, Waitman Bourne, and Bastin Willems. So please welcome them to the stage. Thank you very much. Thank you. I finally made it. Al Murray opened for me, so uh, that's great. So thank you so much uh, for coming. Um, we're not doing a bait and switch, I promise, um, but we're going to talk a little bit broad, more broadly about the end of the war in Germany rather than just Berlin, but we will obviously talk about Berlin some. And the, the way that we sort of thought we would organize this, because we all have sort of different but related interests uh, regarding this period, is to think about decisions. Decisions that are being made in the Endkampf as the Germans call it, or the Gute Dämmerung, the Twilight of the Gods, or the, this fall of Nazi Germany, when things are falling apart. Um, what are the decisions that are being made and who are making them? We just sort of lucked into a really nice structure that goes from sort of a largest scale, um, geopolitical, international strategic level, down to sort of what individual people are doing. Um, and what we're gonna do is really, uh, we only have three slides, uh, and they're just pictures, so no reading is required. Um, and we're, I know you all can read. I'm not assuming you can. Uh, but we're just going to talk um, a little bit about each one of these areas as a group. Um, and then we're going to leave plenty of time for questions. Because I think I speak for all of us when I say we're really selfish. And what actually we enjoy more as the presenters is hearing from you. And hearing the questions that you have. And seeing where sort of our brief comments might have uh, spurred you to go. So without further ado, um, we're going to start at the highest level, which is um, the decision of the Allies not to go for Berlin. And Alex, can, can you tell us a little bit what, why you know, the Allies decide to sort of let the Soviets have Berlin? Okay, so the first question I have for you to think about for later on is, um, is, is how many of you think that we should have gone for Berlin? Any, anybody, anybody who thinks we should have, Monty, Churchill, 
take Berlin, the, the really the core thing. And those who, who think we should not have gone for Berlin, and we did exactly what Eisenhower thought we should do. Interesting. I, I'll see if you change your minds by the end. So just briefly, 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 the, the, um, I'm doing the, the Fokker Wolf, you know, ME 9-11 view up here of the international perspective at the end of the war. And the question that the Allies were facing is, is what do we do about Berlin, this, this, this incredibly important symbolic city? Uh, you know, if you get Berlin, you, you've won the war in Europe and so on. And, um, and actually, Eisenhower and Roosevelt thought that the uh, taking of Berlin was absolutely crucial all the way, if you look at their, if you look at their um, uh, letters, memoranda, and, and comments, all the way through 1944, Berlin is the target. And Eisenhower agrees with Monty that this is the way that it should go. But then everything starts changing with the great uh, Vistula Odor offensive of the Soviets in January 1945. And Stalin starts sort of sweeping in toward, uh, toward Berlin. And then comes the very big question that the Allies have to face. Uh, they have then met at Yalta, and they've agreed to carve up Germany and Berlin in a certain way, geographically, between, dividing it at that point between the three allies. The French come in later, as usual. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, we, so they've got this sort of division already set up. So what to do? Uh, Eisenhower is starting to really worry about the war in Japan. And so is Roosevelt. What, okay, the war in Europe is obviously coming to an end. It's going to end sooner or later. They actually thought it would end earlier than it, than it finally did. But what do we do? Eisenhower talks to Bradley and says, you know, how many troops are we going to lose if we go for Berlin? And Bradley goes, it could be up to 100,000. And Eisenhower says, that's too many. So we're not going to go for Berlin. We're going to go uh, and take care of this sort of national redoubt, which turned out to be bogus, this idea the Nazis were going to have a second redoubt in, in Munich, around Munich. And they're going to meet the Soviets uh, in a place called Torgau on the Elbe River. Monty and Churchill are absolutely incensed, and especially when Eisenhower, off his own bat, writes to Stalin uh, in, on the 28th of March, saying... We decided not to go for Berlin. Of course, Stalin doesn't believe a word of it. He immediately sends his generals to try and go for Berlin as fast as he possibly can. Um, but Churchill says, if the enemy's resistance should weaken, why should we not cross the Elbe and advance so far eastward as possible? This has an important political bearing as the Russian army of the south seems certain to enter Vienna and overrun Austria. If we deliberately leave Berlin to them, even if it should be in our grasp, the doubt event may strengthen their conviction conviction already apparent that they have done everything. So in other words, Churchill is thinking very much in European terms, uh, in terms of the coming Cold War with the Soviets, which he perceives much, much more quickly than certainly Roosevelt did and, uh, and Eisenhower. Uh, and so he, he puts forward this argument. And it really causes tensions uh, between the Allies after the war, after Hitler commits suicide in the bunker. Uh, and you've got Monty you know, going on, on making films and, and articles and journalism and so on, afterwards saying, you see, if they'd listened to us, we wouldn't have this Cold War problem with the Soviets in Berlin. So this is one of the great, great debates of the war. Was this Eisenhower's biggest mistake or was this the most clever thing that he ever did? So that's the, that's the beginning of the, of the outline. Great, great. And, and I, I want to move now a little bit down uh, the scale to a topic that's, that's near and dear to my heart. I, sorry, I live my life in scare quotes. It's, it's not really near and dear, but crimes of the Wehrmacht, right? And so um, if we go to the next slide, please. You know, one of the things that if you ever go and go to do research, for example, in the archives at Ludwigsburg, which is the office of the Central Investigation for Nazi Violent Crime, um, one of the categories is end phase, end phase, which is sort of things that are happening in this exact period when things are falling apart. And so um, Bastian's going to talk about a decision 
uh, decisions that are made by the Wehrmacht, by German authorities, about what to do with local civilian populations and, and how to use them or not to use them. So yeah, tell us more about this. Well, first I will ask you, think about your own bookcase, just back home, right? So you have academic books, uh, books written by scholars, and you have books written by soldiers. Now, think about first the books written by academics. You tend to have the Eastern Front, or like books on the Eastern Front, and then you have books on Germany in the final year of the war, right? They're called Germany 1945, or and then you have books on the Eastern Front 1941 to 1944, or something like that, right? Now, we consider the books written by German soldiers. They're normally um, accounts throughout the war or maybe even beyond that into uh, their, their time as prisoners of war, right? So this is normally how your uh, bookcase looks, or at least that is how mine looks. <laughs> so now, if we think about the difference between those two, why are we as historians so committed to dividing Germany in 1945 and the years before, like as if the Soviet Union in 1944 and Germany are two completely different things. That is how, sort of how we want to understand it. But what I've been doing with my research, I'm saying like, yeah, but look, these guys very clearly feel themselves to start off that they are actually uh, continuing this war. Like they still, once they retreat into Germany, these are still the same enemies they have in front of them. They're still in the same units, they're still within the same uh, command structure. So for a lot of these uh, hardened German veterans, these are the exact same uh, processes of which they are part. It doesn't just fundamentally change. These men are not just um, friendly men all of a sudden. Like, no, these men are hardened veterans after three years of extremely, extremely, extremely brutal fighting, genocidal warfare, as we all hopefully very well know. So my question is, okay, you have this man who's been fighting for three hard, brutal years. What happens if this man now retreats back onto his own soil and starts to uh, interact with his own civilians? Like, how do you, after three years of this brutal fight, like, how do you just transition back onto your own territory? And how do you start behaving towards your own uh, citizens? Because your entire mindset, your entire behavioral pattern has been changing over these last three years, right? So how do they now interact uh, with, their, with their own? So that is the question that has guided my research. And what you then, of course, see, and uh, this is where uh, the narrative of uh, Germany in 1945 sort of uh, uh, comes up again. Okay, you see uh, civilians are actively used uh, in the defense of, of, their, uh, of their cities. You see this massive spike of summary executions, for example, indeed, these crimes of the final phase. And this, uh, uh, this is so incredibly important. And what you see, what I try to do here, unfortunately, I'm afraid you cannot see it in the back. Maybe you cannot even see it in the front. But like these are incredibly young boys that are being drafted uh, into the military. And if you look at, uh, at the left, you see that uh, these are just older, regular um, uh, veterans who are, in this case, being evacuated. Because what ends up happening, of course, is that you try to keep your unit intact best as you can, right? So you have a, a command structure and you try to keep your unit uh, as best intact as you can. So that means that uh, your cater of, uh, uh, of officers, of uh, seasoned non-commissioned officers, you want to keep those intact. You're not going to put those at the front. No, like you want to uh, basically have 16-year-old boys, 17-year-old boys. They can do the 
they can do the, uh, the dying basically, but you want to keep your structure intact. So what ends up happening with the evacuations uh, from, from Eastern Germany, for example, is that they will evacuate first um, the seasoned veterans before they really start uh, thinking about uh, civilians. Obviously, as we know, civilians are being evacuated too. But first, uh, it's the military who comes in just to keep uh, the Wehrmacht structure uh, intact as long as possible. This has to remain a fighting force as long as possible. And that is what drives motivation. But that is also what sparks this epic wave of violence that you see in the, uh, in the final year of the war. So I guess so. so if we can sort of tie the first two comments together. So Alex, do the German authorities recognize that the allies, or at least the Western allies, have made the decision not to go for Berlin? And that, does that give them then some insight or freedom or impetus to behave in a certain way as they're fighting the Soviets? The greatest priority for them was the realization that they, had, they were facing unconditional surrender. And this was seen to be both a Soviet and Western allied uh, um, diktat, as they saw it. Uh, and so this was the, the overwhelming feeling amongst them was that we, we have to fight to the death, we have to fight to the finish anyway. Now, in, subtly, the great many Germans wanted to surrender to the American or the British forces. So it wasn't really to do with the borders that were agreed, with, uh, agreed upon at Yalta, and a lot of the average German soldier wouldn't have known that, wouldn't have known where the borders were going to be or anything else. But all they felt was the Soviets, and they, after all, had years and years of Goebbelsian propaganda about the Soviet hordes, and then the Russians start to behave exactly as, the, as Goebbels said they were going to, uh, as they sweep through into German territory in East, East Prussia and then into Silesia and so on, so that the, the, the overwhelming uh, majority of German soldiers, the ordinary German Wehrmacht soldier wants to get to the West as quickly as possible so that they can surrender to the British and American troops. But there is this overarching concern about the fact that they are facing unconditional surrender and that Germany is going to be in the hands of these, of what they consider at this point to be their enemies. Yeah, cool. Okay. So, so it seems like it's a positive thing, right? That the allies are very explicit and at least united in a public sense about unconditional surrender because that then has a particular impact on, on Germany, right? And so then the question from, for, for Baz, I was wondering as you were talking, you know, okay, so you, you spoke sort of at a general level, but what is the Wehrmacht doing with civilians, right? Because they're impeded in a way by civilians in a way that they're not when the civilians are Poles or Russians or whatever. Right? These are German civilians. So how, how do they end up behaving? And can you sort of perhaps draw some general conclusions about the ways in which the sort of German army at the, the twilight of the Reich is treating its own civilians. Yeah, so let's first think about, rather than thinking about the German army as a whole, uh, let's think about them a little bit smaller. So say you're in a town, you're in a village, doesn't matter where, right? So you are in a command structure, you're still a living, breathing, a man, uh, an officer. Some people are deeply, deeply indoctrinated and cannot see anything but like the fight to the death, but other will know the village where they are, maybe they, they grew up there or anything like that, or you know they are just more empathetic uh, than others. You can still be also, for that matter, an empathetic Nazi. Uh, you can be, or, or like a, a hardcore um, uh, a military man who doesn't care for, for Nazism, like that all exists uh, too. And that will really impact the way that you start to treat civilians. If you want to defend a city uh, to the to the last bullet, to the last drop of blood, to the last man, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you will uh, then organize your defense in such a way that that happens. So you see that in Berlin, 
Uh, I focus on Königsberg, uh, the capital of East Prussia, also like a very big town uh, city where this is possible. Some smaller uh, cities or uh, also bigger cities doesn't, again, doesn't matter. It really depends on the people there. Um, they, uh, they can also approach things differently. So some people say, no, we're going to now use all civilian means at our disposal. We're going to see, okay, here we have a group of women. Are we going to evacuate them or go in, are we going to use them uh, to help, uh, for example, uh, in the hospitals or prepare meals or this sort of thing? Because women can still be incredibly helpful. Other rules, no, 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 actually, uh, women and children have to be uh, evacuated out of the city. It's like, yeah, but children can also pass artillery coordinates, can they? And, uh, you know, they can help mine bridges. So, uh, like all these things, uh, uh, they can also do that. So, uh, whereas another uh, general might say, this is absolutely patently absurd. We are not going to do that. Uh, then another aspect, of course, is do you have the means? If you have maybe a few tanks at your uh, disposal, you might be less likely to go into a city because a tank is pretty useless in a city compared to uh, on an open field, right? This is why tanks are <laughs> here uh, in a field and not in the middle of a city. It's just much harder to get a tank to, right? So it also means that uh, the things that you have at your uh, disposal. So don't necessarily think it's the Wehrmacht is, or like in 1945 is this one thing. Germany is fractured. Uh, there is uh, just less control by the very nature of the fact that uh, units are being cut off left and right. Like I hope you all sort of know that obviously uh, the German military, uh, I wouldn't say breaks down, but uh, there is just more uh, opportunity for individual agency, which means that some uh, cities uh, surrender without a fight, whereas others are particularly uh, brutally fought over. Like obviously within the way that we think about Germany in the last year of the war, we only think about bloodshed and so on and so on, and that is very correct, of course. But keep in mind that there's a great many cities that also surrender without a fight because they do have more sensible uh, commanders too. So it's it's a little bit of a little bit of both, uh, obviously. Can I just just jump in quickly to say that you're absolutely right. It just depends on where you are. And and for example, you have someone like Gauleiter Koch up in East Prussia who refuses to allow civilians to get out. He flies his little freezer stork out and then pretends that he's still out fighting when he's a complete liar. But the thing about Berlin is, and the thing that makes it so horrific, Königsberg too, and, and Wroclaw Breslau as well, but, but you can imagine the end game in Berlin because the city's then encircled and, and people can't get out. So all of these layers you're talking about, so some people trying to get to the west, some people, once the city's encircled, by the Red Army and nobody can get out, then the hell begins, the true hell begins because the Soviets are first of all pounding the city uh, with artillery and everything else they've got. Plus, you know, people are trapped and you have, you have the Red Army moving sometimes into one street or another. You've got young Wehrmacht or Volkssturm kids aged 16 years old taking off their uniforms, hiding in basements. So the SS guys come through, whoever they start killing them because they're deserters or hanging them from lampposts. And then the Red Army moves in again from the other direction, finds these dead bodies. But, you know, so the, the situation is truly one of the lower rings of hell. It's absolutely awful for the, for the civilians who are trapped, but also for the, for the military who are trapped. Some people fight. Some people fight to the death. They're indoctrinated or whatever. There are many, many suicides. And there are many murders by their own side uh, for people who are considered to be deserters. So it really is, is chaos. Then you have the other 
the big flak towers, for example, which are which are used as kind of a sort of solitary islands where, where the Red Army is sort of swarming around them. And you've got scenes of your huge, massive orgies, people getting completely drunk, uh, um, you know, uh, just amazing, amazing scenes that people have written about uh, in those last, last days of Berlin. So, you know, yes, it's true, many other cities... Um, went through similar torments. But Berlin at the end, with this big, huge capital city, the city, the symbol of Hitler, with Hitler still stuck in his bunker, marrying Eva Brown and writing his last crazy will and testament thing. It's a bizarre, absolutely um, strange, chaotic uh, hell that happens on, on Earth for those, for those weeks that Berlin is being taken after the encirclement. Well, so to do what we all like to do, which is sort of the counterfactual, right, the what if, and without doing the one that I hate, which is what could the Nazis have done to win the war. So without getting into the larger geopolitical post-war context in the Cold War, what would have happened? But do you, what would have happened if the Allies had decided to, to go for Berlin? And so you had, sort of had this competition. What, how do you think that might have impacted, for example, what Bastian was talking about with civilians or just in general? Like what are, what are the immediate sort of impacts? Well, sort of the, the, the war gaming of it. And, and the, there has been an awful lot of, you know, like David Glantz did a great, a great war game of what if the Allies had started to go for Berlin. There, there would have been losses because there were, there were the SS and, and Hitler Youth and other fanatics who were still going to fight. But generally speaking, the losses would have probably been much less than 100,000. And it's very likely that the Western Allies would have gotten to, to Berlin relatively easily. Certainly nothing like the Soviet fight where, where uh, you know, 100 and whatever, 20,000 uh, troops are wounded and just in the city center colonel alone. And it was a massive battle. So the, the war gaming shows that, yes, the Western Allies would have been able to go and take their districts. So what it would have meant on the geopolitical sense that the Western Allies, in a sense, took this prize uh, and, and showed their worth militarily and so on, put their stamp on the Cold War in a, in a perhaps more positive sense. What it would have meant for the civilians and so on is that the civilians would have not undergone weeks and weeks of Soviet occupation with the mass rapes and with the looting, with all the other things going for the uranium, et cetera, et cetera, that the population of Berlin suffered. At the time, the Western Allies' view is, well, whatever the population of Berlin suffers, they brought it on themselves, so what? But now, with hindsight, when we look at all the crimes that were being committed, you know, there is more of a sense of, well, should we, should we have gone? Should we have done it? Would the costs really have been that high? It's one of the great what if questions of, of the Second World War, World War II. Can I give a very, like, did, to me this is one of the most saddening stories and also really shows um, sort of like how this long-term sort of thinking of, of, the, of, the, of the military sort of continues into the last year of the war. Like, like, I think we all know about the rape of German women, right? And like, this was absolutely horrific. And they, obviously they were thinking about this at the time. So. In Königsberg, uh, you have the opportunity to evacuate some women out of the city. Now, the fortress command, which is uh, General Lush, together with uh, a guy called Wagner, Kreisleiter Wagner, because Koch is indeed sort of, you know, off somewhere else at that point already, like claim, claims to be in the city, but very much isn't. So they are now faced with the problem, okay, we have so many women in the city, and to them, it's completely sure. Like they are all going to be raped. How are we going to deal with this? Right? They are faced with this moral dilemma because we can now evacuate them. They are not going to get raped. But then we don't have efficient uh, manpower. So this is their solution. Like this, they uh, they draft a legislation that says every German man in the city should have sex with a German 
women because then by the time they're raped, they're already pregnant, and then it's not so bad because the kid is then actually German anyway. So like that is a way to make it all slightly worse for the for the German people. Like this is this is their like this is their solution. Fortunately, this legislation is not implemented. But you yeah like this this really shows. Like they are thinking about these sort of questions in such different ways. Like we don't even get there. Like I, I remember reading this for the first time. Go, what? No, I have to like. I have to, like maybe my German is off. So I read it. <laughs> like read, read it again. What? No. And it's like I just until it's like no. That is just what it says. And it's just yeah. It's in incredibly upsetting. But like this. This is how it's being thought about. Uh, like like the, these sort of questions. And this is I think also why. We really struggled to 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 get the magnitude of, of of these sort of like horrible rapes because we we cannot get there mentally. It, it, it's very hard to understand how this on a like on a societal level. I think we can you know unfortunately understand individual rape, one guy raping, so you know. But at this level, it becomes this whole different beast that is very hard to sort of like get to. And you're absolutely right because Stalin actually gave the. Uh, Red Army carte blanche to rape. It's the you know the German women are yours. Basically, it was encouraged. It was a, encouraged as an act of war, actually. And so and so, there's no question that the that the Germans were also very guilty of of, of rape on their way through to toward the east in 1939, 1941 too. So it's not just a, a Soviet crime. The Germans were guilty of it too. But this was different. It was this, it was a, an act of war, a mass kind of uh, a mindset that made this absolutely completely legitimate and and perfectly okay. There's a there's a fantastic book, A Woman in Berlin, which is an anonymous book about the about the history of, of the rapes and, and women trying to protect themselves by finding one sort of Red Army officer, for example, who might protect them from this. It was an absolute scourge. And yet I remember interviewing um, uh, not just one, Wehrmacht uh, veterans in the 1980s when I did a huge series of interviews, and more than one said, well, you know, it's better to be raped than to be killed. Uh, and, and, you know, that was their logic. So, you know, okay. <laughs> well, I'd like, to, I'd like to thank Bastian and Alex for taking it to the next level of grim without me having to do it. That's, <laughs> that's usually my job. Um, so if you think about it, we're going down and down in scale. And so the, the, the topic that I wanted to talk about, which, which fits nicely in with, with the level of cringe that we just heard, um, is what, what are the Nazis doing? What are the perpetrators doing in particular? What decisions are they making? Um, because at this end period, it is, it is a apparent to everyone, even the true believers, that you know, this war is not going to end well for Germany. Um, and so many of them are beginning to think about what is my future going to look like you know, in a world in which we are not the master race anymore, right? Um, and so I want to I tell a story of an individual, but it, I think it plays into and is representative of a lot of the things that are going on in this particular period of time. And I'm gonna cheat a little bit. Historians love to do this, talk about like, you know, the long 20th century, which lets them talk about the 1880s or something, right? So I'm gonna talk about the long 1945, which includes a little bit of 1944. Um, but if you think about, you know, the, the, the Holocaust perpetrators, and there, there are lots of other perpetrators, lots of perpetrators of different kinds um, who are guilty of, of various crimes. Um, but I'm gonna talk in particular about, about one Holocaust perpetrator. They really have three sort of options, right? Um, and Alex has already mentioned some of them in Bastian as well. You, you can kill yourself, you know, not wanting to live in a world without Hitler, Hitler killed himself. Um, you can decide to sort of fight to the end 
and sort of do your duty and sort of see how far that gets you and then reevaluate at the point at which you are sort of captured or it's, it's over if you survive. And then the third option, which is what I'm going to try to talk about, is to kind of hedge your bets and figure out ways in which you might be able to survive, escape. And I, I find this particularly interesting, and this is not the only example, there are lots of them, of these people who have, we'll sort of say, a flexible sense of duty, right? Um, and, and so the, the person that I'm going to talk about is a guy named Friedrich Vartzak, and he's actually here highlighted on the right. Um, you can't, maybe can't see this in, entirely, but the, that's Himmler, uh, third from the left, third from the right. Um, and he's visiting this camp called Yunovska, which is in Lviv um, in 1943. And Friedrich Vartzak is an ethnic German from Pomerania, which is now Poland. Um, and so he, he's already grown up amongst both Poles and Germans. Um, but is an ethnic German. He's an early joiner of the Selbstschutz, which are these volunteer sort of militias um, that are rabidly Nazi, rabidly anti-Semitic, and, and are sort of the breeding grounds for a lot of, of entrance into the SS and things like this. Um, in any case, he, he gets into the sort of concentration camp commandant business in um, District Galician, which is the easternmost part of the general government, which is what the Germans called Nazi-occupied Poland. And of course, as we know, there, there are 40,000 at least identified concentration camps beyond the ones that you've all heard of. And he starts out as a commandant in these places, these smaller places, and then he ends up as the commandant of Yanovska, which is literally just outside of Lviv, um, to sort of provide, preside over the end phase of this particular camp. Um, and one of the things he does, and this is gonna, we're going to come back to why this is important, but one of the things he does is he enriches himself which is not uncommon, but he's, he, he is pilfering um, valuables, goods, he's taking bribes, he's doing all of these things that are in incredibly corrupt and building up an immense amount um, of wealth. And uh, towards the end of 1943 and then into the beginning of 1944, he presides over the liquidation of the camp. I'm not gonna talk about that, um, but he ends up with essentially this very small amount of prisoners left by July of 1944, which is when the Red Army is coming through Lviv and he's forced to evacuate. And this is where things get uh, particularly interesting. We talk about decisions. What, what do you do when you know uh, you're a perpetrator and you're going to be uh, sought after uh, by not only the Russians, but also by your own SS? Why might that be? Well, and as Bastian has sort of hinted about this already, uh, the SS and, and, and the military are looking for bodies to stop bullets, particularly Russian bullets. Um, and one of the things that, that many of these perpetrators uh, from camps you've heard of and ones you haven't heard of are very interested in not stopping bullets. Uh, and so they're trying to figure out ways to, to avoid this. And so Vartsak here um, rounds up the last number of prisoners in the camp, which is like 30 or 40. So they, they, this camp has killed over 80,000 human beings in the course of four years. Um, but there's about 40 left who are sort of the rump uh, remaining force. And he loads them on a train car, one train car. So this is the, the entire population of the camp fits in one train car. And there are about 30, 40, 50, 60 SS guards. So the SS guards outnumber the prisoners. He puts them on this train and uh, they, 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 take, they take the train out of uh, Lviv to, and they get off someplace uh, farther to the west. And he turns them into this thing called Baustab Venus or the construction detail Venus. Um, tasked with building defenses and fortifications that the Wehrmacht can then use to 
fight the Russians and, and slow them down as they move from east to west. But the interesting thing is there's no such thing as Balstab Venus. He just made it up. And he conveniently put himself in charge of it so that when any, any SS guy or a military police comes by and says, hey, we need you to come uh, you know, get into the front line and fight the Russians, he can say, sorry, I'm in charge of this critically important uh, military fortifications building operation called Balstab Venus. And uh, one of the prisoners from Yanovska who is in this particular Balstab Venus is a guy named Simon Wiesenthal. And Simon Wiesenthal, the famed Nazi hunter, many of you have heard of. Um, he manages, he's from, he's an architect and he's from Lviv. Um, he lives there with his wife. He manages to get his wife out by working with the Polish resistance. And he, he was a sign painter. And so he remembers traveling all across 100 miles of, of, of forced march, 100 miles uh, across Poland, uh, painting signs that say Balstab Venus whenever they stop. And of course, they don't do anything. They just sit there, and the SS sit there with them. And Vartsok actually turns to Simon Wiesenthal at one point, and he says, you're coming with us, and together we're going to survive. And there's this really weird sense that, you know, everyone knows that Vartsok is using these last 40 prisoners as a, as a shield to prevent him from having to, um, to fight or be roped into to fighting. And so it's a very cynical sort of move, um, but it gets him all the way back to, um, to central Poland, where he drops off these prisoners at a camp called Kwajow, which you may have heard of. That's the one in Schindler's List, um, run by Amon Guth. Um, and so they stay there, and he is reassigned in March of 1945 to a place called Noyangama, which is another concentration camp um, just outside of Hamburg. The rest of the prisoners go on a different journey, and I'll talk about that just very briefly in a second, because it's also one of these decisions that's being made. Vartsok, uh, the last we know of Vartsok is he sent a letter to his wife from Noyangama in March of 1945, and then he disappears. And uh, some of his former colleagues show up at his wife's house and try to get money out of her, for example, and looking for him, but they can't find him. And Simon Wiesenthal, after the war, obviously becomes the famed Nazi hunter that you all know, and one of the key targets on this list is Friedrich Vartsok, uh, because he knows him and he experienced, he literally did this death march with him. Um, most likely, Friedrich Vartsok escaped via the rat line and via the Catholic Church to Egypt and lived out his days, according to one 1967 article, living as a, as a prince in the outskirts of Cairo. I'll go back to how does he do that? Remember when I said he was stealing lots of wealth and money and things like that? Lots of the Nazi perpetrators in this end phase are amassing liquid wealth. Um, and a lot of, and those that are in the camp system are skimming that off the top of what's being looted from uh, the concentration camp prisoners. And they're then using this, this liquid wealth, gold, silver, currency, diamonds, to, to bribe their way, to pay their way, to get their way out of Europe. And there are lots of them that are doing that. Um, which brings me to the, the last piece. I'm gonna take about two minutes because I wanna leave lots of time for questions for everyone else. Um, so that, that's a decision of an individual, but lots of individuals are making these decisions. How do we, you know, up to and including Himmler at one point when he decides himself as a, as a serviceman and sort of tries to hide. Um, many of them are trying to plot out what are they gonna do in the post-war period? How are they going to escape? Um, but others who are still sort of in the system and working are trying to figure out what do we do with the concentration camp inmates? 
what do we do with the prisoners? And one of the things that is perplexing probably for, for many of you and, and for lots of people is, you know, why do they spend so much time and effort in messing with these people when they're literally losing miles and miles and miles a day and the, the Reich is constricting? Um, and so what you have at the end phase here are these massive death marches. Um, the one that I mentioned with Vartsak was only 100 miles, um, but you have lots of them uh, from all over parts of Germany. As the Reich is shrinking, um, Himmler orders that the slave labor also be transported um, further in. And so actually, when you think about some of the worst places that you've heard of, Dachau, Bergen-Belsen, Mauthausen, where Simon Wiesenthal ends up at the end of the war, um, the, the, the periods of the highest death rates of these places where most people are dying is in these last several months of the war when the front is constricting because these places are receiving thousands and thousands and thousands of prisoners that they are not capable of providing for even in the most meager way that they're already providing for the, the prisoners that are there. So the first American soldiers, for example, that arrive in um, Dachau, you may have heard of the famous death train which is this, this train full of bots cars um, that were never unloaded, um, and thousands and thousands of prisoners died in these trains. Well, that's because they were shipped there as part of this massive um, constriction of the Reich, but also the evacuation of the concentration camps. And, and this is one of the ways in which, and I always make this point, and then Al and, and Jim are really nice about it, it, supporting this, and I've, I've heard lots of talks of doing this as well, about how important the Holocaust is alongside and, and during the Second World War, and these are not two siloed things that are separate. And so the actual, the, the route of the war, the way the war is going, is making important uh, decisions necessary for the decision makers. Um, and you have all kinds of immediate impacts on survivors um, to the extent that, you know, trains have varying amounts of priority. So sometimes a, a train journey that should take eight hours takes four days. And, and you know, you have the bulk of the prisoners dying as a result. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh. How so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay.
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. As much as I like to hear myself talk, I'd rather hear what y'all have to say. Um, so shall we open it to questions? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, at the end of the war, we've got millions and millions of displaced persons and um, forced laborers and uh, laborers from around Europe in Germany. Can you tell us a little bit about the decision-making processes that were made um, by the incoming allies regarding um, the treatment of these displaced persons and um, the policies regarding forced repatriation? Obviously, there is indeed this massive group from basically uh, a lot of uh, forced uh, laborers, for example. They, um, they have been brought to Germany uh, throughout the war, so from Ukraine, from Poland, from, uh, from the Netherlands, Belgium, everywhere, basically. So you have to come up with um, like uh, with, with a plan to repatriate them. So a lot of Poles, interestingly enough, uh, they really struggle with uh, with those because here you have a uh, upcoming uh, communist uh, state. Obviously, like that is a big, big uh, yeah, issue of of concern. So uh, the Brits come up with a plan to at least bring uh, a number of them to. Uh, to Britain, Operation Westward Ho. Uh, so it's, uh, and yeah, so they try to organize uh, these sort of things in that uh, matter uh, at, uh, at the camps themselves, because a lot of them actually stay uh, in the camps. So um, uh, I want to say Bergen-Belsen stays uh, uh, occupied for a very long time with uh, displaced persons. And actually this becomes uh, even for for the Jews there, actually a point of uh, pride. At some point, um, the British uh, administration there says, shall we rename Bergen-Belsen? This must be so traumatizing for you to having to live in 
you know, Bergen-Belsen in 1946, right? And it's like, no, no, like we earned this one. And so, uh, like, they will they will keep the name, and they actually uh, they will put up plays, for example. So, little stage emerges, and they, they they start to act out their experiences. So, like, this is an incredibly like multifaceted uh, um, uh, yeah, operation. They will try to separate uh, the different countries a little bit. Uh, for example, a lot of young kids are there, and they don't know who their parents are. So. Uh, but sometimes they even don't know where they're from. They sort of know where their village, uh, what their village looks like, but that, that, that is sort of it. So where are you from? And they cannot answer. So they, uh, uh, they start to answer it, uh, ask it in Polish. Where are you from? In Polish. Kid doesn't say anything. Where are you from? In Czech. Nothing. Where are you from? In Belarusian. Oh, I'm from this. Ah, okay. We know at least this kid is from, from Belarus, right? So uh, like this, you have like snippets of information. They, they, they start to... To piece that together a little bit, and uh, yeah, so and like this way you can, okay, like let's put them with with Belarusians. Maybe we can get some information going on the, on, the, on this person. So, and then yeah, so like it's all little pieces of the puzzle, and this this is a massive uh, organization. Obviously, like food and shelter becomes this this big, uh, big thing. Yeah. So like this is such a broad topic that I you know we couldn't possibly. Yeah, and the, and yeah. the um, and the the organizations for for example UNRWA and the Red Cross face an absolute mammoth task of what to do with with these people and also uh, there, there's the, the the thorny question of the repatriation of former Soviet citizens who are forced very often against their will to go back to the Soviet Union they're facing at least the gulag if not death uh, including um, Soviet soldiers who were POWs and and were treated abysmally by Stalin um, and and just a very quick point about what you were talking about Waitman was the was the um, the difference between the DPs and the and the people who had enriched themselves. So there was still a two-tier system. Um, a, a, a member of my family in Amsterdam, um, they paid the, the, an SS officer a thousand golden guilders for for my uncle to survive. He was seven years old at the time with his twin brother. That guy pocketed the the, the gold, and and we don't know how many other times he'd done this. Uh, you know, and and that would have been spirited away to his his family home wherever it was in Germany. Um, we have many many cases of this more extreme people like Oscar Derlevanger, but all of these guys were looting and pillaging and taking things and 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 uh, sometimes things of great value that were easy to hide diamonds, gold, and so on. And they had therefore some capital, something to sell when the war was over. They could get their personal shine, their fake, you know, uh, whitewash that they had nothing to do with the Nazis, and then start work or whatever, but even people like last year, those of you who were here remember talking to Nicholas Frank. And uh, his, his mother had, you know, sort of amounts of money and gold and so on, for which she could buy a house and then, and then they could, you know, have a bed and breakfast or whatever. The, the uh, DPs had none of that. They were absolutely desperate, destitute. And uh, I've met DPs who were in camps. Um, there was a Jewish lady with the World War II Museum a few years ago who was in a camp until 1953. Uh, you know, so, so this, was, this was a huge, huge problem for Europe. And, and, and there were many tragic stories, including of, of you know, children who'd been stolen by the Nazis to, to be orphaned out to SS men and all these people. They, these people were lost. They never found their, their, their homes again. And it's important to realize that, that this period of time, beginning even in, in 1945 when the war is not over, witnesses the time one of the largest, you know, sort of internally displaced persons moment in, certainly in European history, right? Because the, you have this massive, mass movements of human beings 
um, and, and we haven't even talked about ethnic German expellees. So like a lot of Eastern European countries, once they were liberated by the Soviets, they kicked out their ethnic German populations and they had to end up someplace. So, so Germany, Poland, some of these places are this, this, this cauldron, this swirling cauldron of human beings from all different walks of life, all different places, all different ranges on the spectrum from Nazi perpetrator camp guard in hiding to child victim of the Holocaust, right? And they're all just sort of percolating around. And the, you know, the details of what, what do we do with them are, are really interesting. You know, the, one of the problems for German Jews, for example, even if you're a victim of the Holocaust, you are still technically an enemy civilian. You're an enemy citizen of Germany in the eyes of, of UNRA and the United States and everybody else. And so that, you, know, you have bureaucrats that are trying to work out all of these things, like how do we handle you? And then as Alex pointed out as well, you know, what do we do with all the people from Russia who, and, the, and the Soviet Union and, and who obviously the Holocaust and forced labor was a terrible thing, but the only upside of that might be that they don't have to go back the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union is saying these are our citizens. And of course, the most extreme example of this are the, I think there's about 900 Soviet prisoners of war that survive Auschwitz, and they end up going on a, a direct train to the Gulag when they get out. So I mean, it's just, you know, because Stalin thinks that basically if you end up being surrendered and captured, you're a traitor rather than someone who's, who's lost the will to fight or the ability to fight rather. Um, next question. Uh, Alex, you said uh, the Western allies could have reached Berlin relatively easy. Uh, easily, and that Eisenhower had been told 100,000 casualties. So did they overestimate the casualties, or did it just turn out that we could have reached easier? The, the, this was the, this conversation with, with Omar Bradley, when Bradley was asked by Eisenhower, what's the estimated death toll? And he said up to 100,000. But when there was sort of wargaming by a very eminent historian, David Glantz, and others as well, who, who, who looked at, for example, the number of Germans who were surrendering to the Western allies, that although there were still some fanatics and there were still some, you know, uh, Hitler youth and people who might have put up a resistance to, to the Western allies, that generally speaking, um, pretty well everybody wanted to surrender to the Western allies. And so, yes, it might still have been a fight. There might have been some loss of life on the American-British side, but that generally speaking wouldn't have been anywhere near 100,000 and that, and that with not much of a fight, they probably would have been able to take the city. And that the, the big question then is, would it have been worth that? Was it worth the, you know, the, I suppose, I mean, Eisenhower called it just a prestige object, and so there's no point in losing troops for that. Um, but others like Churchill argued, no, this is the, this is the Clausewitzian moment. This is the, this is the culmination of the European war to get Berlin. So symbolically, politically, uh, and so on, this was hugely important. And this is, as I said, a question that's still to be answered. But yeah, the, the, the wargaming, the estimations, of course, is a what if question, but is that is, is maybe, you know, in the tens of thousands of people rather than 100,000. Hi, yeah. Um, my father's and grandparents, therefore, were from Insterberg in East Prussia. And um, my mother and father ended up in the UK, hence why I'm here, I guess. But um, my question is because my grand died when I was quite young and I never got to ask her, but journey for a lot of, obviously, how many German citizens would be fleeing west to just escape the Russians and try and get, from what I heard briefly, was just get inside the British, or get inside the Allied zone. How freely were these citizens done? Was it uh, like welcomed? Were German soldiers helping them flee? You know, because obviously they know their fate. Or I just don't know a bit more about the journey. That I imagine millions of German citizens from East Prussia and that part would flee. Yeah. So Insterberg is a is a city just like in in the far far east 
of, uh, of Germany, just east of, of Königsberg. So uh, you have in um, East Prussia at this time uh, about 2 million inhabitants. So that is, give or take, a little bit more, but 500,000 of them are serving in the Wehrmacht, so they're not necessarily uh, in, in the province itself. So just under, just under 2 million. So then you have to decide what you're going to do. Are you going to stay at your place, hope for the best with, with the Russians? Because I think that is actually something that we also tend to forget. Not everyone was so susceptible to the propaganda as we now like to think. There were just people who said, we're just going to wait it out. Like, why go flee, leave all my stuff behind, leave all my, like, my estate behind? So there were people who wait. So let's, you know, like there were some of those to, to start with. Then, of course, there's the vast majority, let's say 90%, who wants to get out. Now, then you have the difference between the German soldier and the German, uh, let's say, officer corps. German soldiers, they really, you know, like, to the best of what they could, they really wanted to help with the evacuation. But what can you really do effectively if your orders are actually very different? If you say, like, actually, you're not allowed to bring civilians because every civilian you bring back is another uh, a gun you cannot uh, bring back. Uh, the streets have to be cleared of civilians. So all the main streets in East Prussia, they are cleared of civilians. They have to use byways. The reason that you see so many people being run over by, uh, by tanks is simply because uh, they could not use uh, the main streets. So all German civilians are kept off the streets by German uh, military. So like this makes your uh, uh, flight uh, so much longer and so much harder. So so many people to sleep uh, under the stars, so to speak. This is mine. This is January 1945 in what is now uh, like Russia or like just north of Poland. So like this is cold. Like it's minus 20, and it's it's a pretty flat landscape. So you have nowhere to hide from the cold even. So uh, then there's basically two options. You have a land option. So you go over. Um, it's called uh, the Frisian uh, Spit, which is uh, yeah, just, just an area of land that sort of almost connects uh, East Prussia to, uh, to Gdansk, Danzig. And um, yeah, so a lot of uh, people fled over that, um, um, yeah, that area. Interestingly enough, this uh, about 500,000 for that matter, but interestingly enough, all these people passed the fully operational concentration camp of Stutthof. Like Stutthof is only... Uh, captured by the by the Red Army on the on the seventh of May or maybe 9th of May, but like around this, no one writes about it. Every, like some people slept uh, within 100 meters from a fully working uh, uh, concentration camp because this is the only place for a very very long time where uh, where you have a place of shelter. If you're ever in this area uh, near Danzig, you will see it's it's very flat, like the uh, German and Dutch farmers were brought in there in the in the 1800s, and they've basically been flattening. If you've ever been in the Netherlands, you see it's as flat as it can come, right? This is exactly what you will see in that area. So basically, the only place where you have some shelter is Stutthof concentration camp. So they fled through this camp and then tried to get uh, further east. If uh, your uh, grandparents um, ended up in Lüneburg, that means that they took another path. That means that they took uh, a boat. So they were helped uh, by, uh, uh, by crews uh, on, on, on ships. Now, a lot of this has been made out of this. This is called, like, maybe some of you have heard of, like, Operation Hannibal, right? It's sort of, like, lives in the lore of, uh, 
yeah, like of, of German post-war, oh, like uh, the German Navy really helped the, the population. The problem is there is no such thing as Operation Hannibal. There is uh, thousands of uh, incredibly brave sailors and people who helped uh, getting these people, uh, like getting these German civilians out to the West. But this is not something that the, uh, the German Navy uh, organizes in any meaningful way. There's no memoir that, like of any, like, Imagine if you saved one million civilians, like how good would your memoir be, right? There's none. There's not like, <laughs> I've been looking for a long, long time for anything, there's like, no. So there, there's, there's nothing there. There's only doing it saying like, oh yes, actually we saved uh, like one and a half million. And obviously then the East Prussian population say, yes, yes, yes. And, uh, but yeah, there's just nothing to indicate that this was anything else, but just get all the ships that are in the East west because again we don't want to have these ships in the hands of the of the russians rather have them in the west so all these ships go west they have to go west right so and then obviously if you're a ship's captain you say you know get as many people on this as possible uh, you know often under shelling and like this is very dangerous like the uh, ships are constantly also like targeted by torpedoes what have you like the the entire baltic sea is in, in, infested at this point with with, with soviet uh, submarines so uh, yeah, so this is, uh, uh, yeah, I, I hope that that answers your, your, your question. Uh, if I remember rightly, um, Roosevelt made the decision uh, for the Allies about the unconditional surrender um, solely without uh, consultation with any of the other Allies. Do you think if that was, uh, do you think that was actually the wrong policy? And the subsequent question really is, was that related really as well to the end of the First World War, where the Germans were never seen to have been defeated? The decision was taken at Tehran, and it's true that Roosevelt sort of came up with the idea and perhaps slightly impolite for him to sort of spring it on Churchill the way he did at Tehran. Nevertheless, I think that the policy was correct, and one of the reasons was that there was always this sort of tension between the Soviets, between Stalin and the Western Allies, with Stalin always suspicious of the Western Allies maybe making a separate peace, and the Western Allies always suspicious that Stalin might do another Ribbentrop-Molotov pact. And by asking for a demanding unconditional surrender in a way, it just made it very, very clear that, that the Germans had to be completely defeated, and that there was also, it's just put paid to any type of peace feelers from within Germany itself. So, of course, the, the, the resistors, like people like Stauffenberg and, and von Trotzus-Salz and von Moltke and all these people were trying to make contact with the British to possibly have some sort of separate peace. Um, and the British, Churchill said absolutely no feelers from anybody from within Germany, particularly after the Venlo incident when, when people posing as um, um, British Secret Service were captured and so on. So, um, so in my personal view, I think it was the, it was the correct decision, uh, and it, it really did, it did hold. It did hold this, this, uh, this um, the big three managed to stick together long enough uh, for Germany to, to, for Hitler to commit suicide, for Germany to surrender, and therefore we didn't have another one of the stab in the back uh, possibilities from like 1918. Well, I think also just from looking at the, the understanding that the Allies had of the crimes the Nazis had committed, and thinking about the, the legal structure that they were going to use to prosecute those crimes, which they were doing in 1945 before the war was over. They're already considering how, how are we going to prosecute those. Unconditional surrender is pivotal. It's, a, it's essential for that because if there's a, some kind of negotiated surrender, then Germany as a state continues to exist, 
needs to have some kind of jurisdiction over its population, which makes um, all of the prosecutions that the Allies do from 1945 to 1949, until when Germany, West Germany, sort of regains its sovereignty and becomes responsible for trying its own war criminals, it would have made all of that impossible. Um, and I think it, one of the it, it, it's it's in the same vein as what Alex is talking about, with stab in the back, but also it allows the Allies, however incompletely, and it is incomplete, to enforce upon Germany, number one, the, the, the realization that you indeed have lost. Um, number two, the realization that you indeed are responsible for these crimes, um, which they do, again, with varying success, but it is a concerted effort, and then to try these people. Um, and I think if you were to talk to um, you know, a German today, many of them see that as a pivotal moment because it, it, it sets the foundation for the, again, relatively speaking, democratic liberal state that that modern Germany is today, which which I don't think would be fundamentally possible if if any element of the Nazi state is allowed to live on without being thoroughly and utterly crushed. I mean, as an American, sort of, if I want to draw the the, the comparison, you know, one of the I would argue one of the problems with what's going on in the states now is the failure of an incomplete reconstruction after the American Civil War. Um, I mean, really, I mean, it, there was no similar sort of. You know, zero hour in, in, this, in the American South. And as a result, a lot of the structures that were present during the American Civil War, during the Confederacy, survived into the post-Confederacy. Whereas in Germany, you have a, a complete clean break. The, the country is managed by the Allies for at least four years, by the Soviets for longer. And, and that sets the foundation for, for, for moving on um, in a way that I think is essential. Can, can I add to that one thing? Because like, I cannot let this go. So, <laughs> so, because we are all sort of, we all have this strict sense of like Nuremberg, you know, like Victor's justice, right? And, you know, to some extent that it's fair. But if you step one centimeter outside of Nuremberg, all the laws that are in place are still the old German uh, laws as they existed prior. So any, give, any given person who is tried for uh, like crimes of the final faith, this is under 1941 Nazified law like this is not so there's like obviously there is a clean break to some extent but a lot of the people stay the same they you know, like famously uh, american commanders come in and say like yeah a 30 year old uh, kid cannot run a police precinct like this have this have to be like a 40 year old guy and obviously this means that this guy has probably been to minsk and back uh, like it's not that clean of a break and like a very famous story for example is of this uh, a gay man who in 1939, he is uh, tried uh, for, for being gay for uh, uh, acts of sodomy and is then put in a concentration camp, makes it throughout the entire year uh, to 1945, makes it throughout the entire war. And then finally, oh, I made it, right? So then 1949, he's still, you know, gay and then uh, gets tried again by the same judge. But and, and and the judge recognized him, so hey, there you are again, and sentence him again. So like it's not it's not it's not that clear for break at any any case. That's just you know what I just wanted to, to add here. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, we'll be around uh, for questions and book signing and that kind of thing. Thanks so much.